Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Today, on the second Sabbath of Advent, we receive a gift, Rahab's gift. Her profession was disgraceful. Her lifestyle, indecent. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and Rahab did what she had to do to survive. Money exchanged hands regularly under her roof. But when the two Israelite spies showed up at her door one evening... Rahab made another type of deal, one that altered the course of her life forever. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Where does this courageous covenant lead? What will 23 and Jesus and me offer us? Does the incarnation of Jesus offer a way to move from indecency to triumph? Okay, go, 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 go. What is it, Mommy? Hmm. It looks like it's a red rope. May I have that? Thank you very much. I appreciate that. A red rope, a scarlet cord. Rahab's gift. There's a story behind this gift, a story that has a great deal to do with the pedigree of Jesus of Nazareth, and also a great deal to do with your future. But we have to start in the modern time with a modern-day storyteller. Modern-day storyteller tells the story of a teenage girl boarding a plane with her grandparents. It was the first time her grandmother and grandfather had flown, and they were quite caught up in the entire experience. They didn't know exactly what happened next and where to go and what to do, and they couldn't hear very well, and so their conversations took place at very loud tones, which you can understand embarrassed her profoundly. 
They finally got onto the plane, and they're making their way down the aisle, and Grandma and Grandpa are having a conversation. What seat are we in, Mabel? I don't know. Just look on the ticket. I don't have the ticket. I gave it to you. I haven't seen that ticket since we were at home. Just keep moving. By now, the teenage girl is just dying inside, mortified. She gets as far ahead as she can, finds their row, and slips into the seat and slides down as far as she can. And then comes the storyteller's line. She was, says the storyteller, overwhelmed with the dread of heredity. <laughs> you can understand that. Overwhelmed with the dread of heredity. You've seen it in your kids. It's what happens with your son. The mom drops him off at school. She's still in curlers right at the front, front entrance to the school. She jumps out of the minivan, runs around to hug him and kiss him so that he'll have a good day. Oh, Mom. It's the young teenage girl whose father says, on your first car date, I'm going with you. I'll be riding in the back seat. Dad, that's social suicide. Overwhelmed with the dread of heredity. But it's not just kids. It's also adults. I think, for example, of the 90s, popular 90s television show, some of you watched, watch maybe, called Frasier. Story of two psychiatrist brother-in-laws, brothers-in-law. These two brothers-in-law are painfully pompous and arrogant. Well, it just so happens that in one of the episodes, they're engaging with their father, of whom they are deeply ashamed and embarrassed because he's way too lowbrow for them. Their father has a bare clock. They think it's horrible. But their dad says, no, 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 this is valuable. Well, I'm going to go to an antiques roadshow, and I'm going to try to sell it there. I'm sure it's worth something. So they end up going with him, holding their nose along the way. They get there, and the appraiser looks at the clock and says, this is a Romanov clock. The Romanovs are royalty from Russia. Immediately, the two brothers, Niles and Fraser, their ears perk up. How much is it worth? Well, it'll bring at least 25000 at auction. What? And thus, they begin a journey to find out their lineage, which leads them to the conclusion that their lineage was Russian royalty. You thought they were pompous before. Now they are insufferably ostentatious. All up until a man comes to visit them. Dr. Mishkin, an attache from the Russian embassy, and a, an expert on the Romanovs. He comes. I want to read you the exchange that happens when he comes to see them. From the script itself, taken from the Internet, here's the exchange. Mishkin, speaking to the brothers, as I mentioned, I have some information which should be very interesting to you. Frazier, yes, yes, do make yourself comfortable. Do tell, do tell. Mishkin holds up a book. This is a copy of the diary of Princess Sonia Romanov, daughter to Tsar Alexander II. At 18, she fell in love with a commoner, an American, at which point Niles mouths to Fraser, our grandmother. Their union, continues Mishkin, of course, was forbidden, but Sonia decided to give up everything for love. Fraser, well, elegance, how elegant. 
Michigan. She enlisted the aid of a scullery maid who smuggled money, clothing, and this bear clock out of the palace. Niles thrilled. She would elope to America, Michigan. Yes, that was her plan. But when Sonia found her way to the train station under the cover of night, the scullery maid absconded with everything, including the clock. <laughs> Niles, servants, Fraser. There's a back aching for the lash. And then Fraser asks, So tell me, how did we get our clock back? Niles, yes, yes. Tell us, how did great great grandmama re- retrieve it? Michigan, confused for a moment, then says, um, Doctors Crane, your ancestor is not the princess. Your ancestor is the scullery maid. <laughs> there is utter silence as Fraser and Niles try to absorb this bombshell. Then Mishkin stands and picks up the clock. Well, on behalf of the Russian people, I thank you for retrieving this for us. Fraser, you mean you're just going to take it? Mishkin, well, its rightful place is the Hermitage Museum. Niles, but this clock has been in our family for generations. Fraser, Niles, block the door. Mishkin, Dr. Crane, we could settle this in the courts, but you wouldn't win. And do you really want this all to come out in the public press? Fraser, well, you, do you really expect us to just let you walk out of here with a precious family heirloom? Mishkin, did I mention that your ancestor, before she married a Noah Crane in 1882, worked as a prostitute in New York City? <laughs> and at that point, Niles and Fraser backpedal faster than an NFL cornerback. <laughs> they want nothing to do with this from that point forward. Now, there you have them, just two fictional characters on an American television program, but who happen to carry a lot in common with those who might have heard the genealogy of Jesus. After all, this, isn't he, is the Messiah. He would be of royal lineage, of regal pedigree, His bloodlines would have been perfect. As as they listened to the names in the pedigree, they would have taken joy. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, the great kings, the great patriarchs. This man has royal lineage, lineage and perfect pedigree. Until you come to some of those names. One in particular today. One name that stands out and must have stopped their hearts. Niles and Fraser backpedaling. What about those who heard and who listened to the original lineage of Jesus? I want to point you to one of those names in particular. So we read, beginning in Matthew 1, verse 1, these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Naashan, Naashan the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was 
Rahab. Rahab. It kind of spoils it. Soils the pedigree. Says that everything is not perfect, everything is not pure, not everybody was upstanding. Rahab. The only identifiable individual in the Bible going by that name. So our question is, just who was Rahab? Well, you would have to travel back centuries, about 14 centuries more or less, to encounter exactly who Rahab was. So to set the scene, the children of Israel have exited Egypt. They're on the exodus. They're, they're traveling behind Moses. It takes them a little while. But they finally arrive at the borders of the promised land. They're ready to go in and possess the land. Moses calls the people together and selects 12 individuals, one from each tribe. You will be the spies who will go over and who will scout out the land. Bring back a report to us of what we can do. And so the spies go. They spend their time. They come back. And if you read the account in Numbers chapter 13, it says that they reported to the entire Israelite assembly. Reported to all of them. And when they reported, they gave them a very discouraging, depressing, dispiriting report. We can't do it. The entire scenario ends up in a mutiny and finally ends with the people headed back into the desert from which they have just emerged for almost four more decades. And then they return. When they come back a second time, when they're on the borders of the land again, there's a new leader, Joshua. Joshua is not going to repeat the mistake of Moses. So instead of calling everybody together and selecting publicly the spies who will go, Joshua does it furtively, secretly. Nobody's to know this, and he chooses only two. I want you to go. I want you to spy out the land. Come back. Give me the report. Not everybody. He wasn't going to risk this going sideways again. And it's in that mission that two unnamed spies, encounter Rahab. Their lives touch, collide, and Rahab has her 15 minutes of fame. The question is, who is she? So I read to you from Joshua, Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. Then Joshua, son of Nun, notice the word, secretly. He's learned his lesson from Moses. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. What are you doing in the red light district? What business do you have there? Now, the truth is, scholar after scholar points out that the language in the original Hebrew, the language in the original Hebrew is filled with double entendre. It can be read as either a, an accurate report of some shady behavior 
or as an ironic use of language, underlining the humor of the event. Probably more agree with the second. But whatever you decide, you're still left with the question, what are you doing in the red light district? Why are you there? Truth is, we don't know the exact answer. But one possibility is quite compelling. After all, remember, these are spies. They are sent on a mission of supreme importance for the future of Israel. This is the promised land. There is going to be battle. There's going to be warfare. These are dangerous times in which you live. And you are going into that land and hoping nobody recognizes you. Because if they recognize you, it won't go well for you. And so the spies, quite possibly, entered into the city and said to each other, where are we least likely to be asked questions or to seem out of place or to stand out like a sore thumb? Where would there be other men gathered? And they too don't want to be asked questions. That's where we're going. It's quite a compelling possibility. What we do know is that's where they went, to the house of Rahab, the harlot, and spent the night. They are on a mission. Listen to what comes next, Joshua 2, verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she, that is Rahab, went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country were melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites on the east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. They find out exactly what they are seeking. The city is petrified. The entire population has knees knocking and hearts pounding. It's likely that on every street corner you can hear the muttering and the questions. What are we going to do? This God of Israel is the greatest God. We're done for. What hope does Jericho have? That's what the spies wanted to know. Are we able to take the city? When they hear that, they know exactly the message they will carry back to Joshua. They're ready to tell him the city can be taken. But Rahab, the prostitute, is used to making deals, cutting deals, making agreements with men. And so she does. Joshua 2, verse 12. Now then, this is still Rahab speaking. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. 
So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go your way. The agreement is reached. They shake on the deal. Our lives for your lives. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We'll take care of it. But we've got to get out of here safely. Now you can imagine the concern. Because battle, whether in ancient times or this time, is a cacophony of chaos. I can remember as an early teen in Sabbath school, listening to our teacher who was a veteran, who had been in Vietnam and had been in battle in Vietnam. I can still vividly remember as a teenage child listening, no doubt, wide-eyed and slack-jawed as our teacher told us about what it was like to be in the midst of battle. He said, it's nothing like what you see on TV. On TV, it seems like everybody on this side is shooting, everybody on that side, and the boundaries are clear and the enemy is seen. Not like that, he said. It's chaos. Such would be the case here. And so the question is, how will you know who my family is? And the spies want to be sure that they are able to identify the right people. Back to Joshua 2, verse 17. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless... When we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell them what we are doing, we will be released from the oath You made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I wonder what those coming days were like in Jericho. Can you imagine standing on the walls and watching? The unfolding of a battle that must have seemed surreal. What are these people doing? Day after day, their silent march circling the city. What is going on? But then on the seventh day, it all went down, including the walls of Jericho. And yet there was that one place where the cord hung from the window, and the account in Joshua 6 says that Rahab and all of her relatives were spared. The lady of the night in the red light district with the scarlet cord, are you ready for this? Used by God. I'll be honest with you, it's a bit easier to make sense of the story in Joshua than it is to make sense of Matthew. 
Joshua is her 15 minutes of fame. This is what happened. This is what she did. Well, we scratch our heads, say that was another time and place, but I guess. But then we come to Matthew. The pedigree of Jesus. Rahab. What in the world is going on? Now, we're uncomfortable with that. How do I know? <laughs> well, consider this. People got busy pretty quickly cleaning Rahab up. Josephus said she was an innkeeper. The Targum, an Aramaic version of the Hebrew Scriptures, said she was a landlord. Another medieval exegete said she was a trader in goods. Not sure what goods he was talking about. But we tried to clean her up. She can't be a lady of the night, working out of the red light district, and God uses her. That can't be. The words of Donald Campbell, Old Testament scholar, underline this when he says, Some, from the time of Josephus to the present, have attempted to soften the situation by arguing that Rahab was only an innkeeper. But the New Testament references to her in Hebrews and James, you can read them, indicate that she was an immoral woman. This in no way impugns the righteousness of God who used such a person in the fulfillment of his purposes. Instead, this incident serves to bring his mercy and grace into bold relief. Now, if Campbell is right, what Campbell is saying is this story is more about God than it is about Rahab. This is about the kind of God that we serve and what steps that God is willing to take. Now, if you come to Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, you will see that the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says that Rahab made her choice or choices by faith. Something must have been stirring in her soul. It's a thought to which Ellen White joins her thinking in saying there was some kind of spirit-inspired moving and changing and transforming going on in the life of Rahab the harlot. In fact, I want to read you a quote from Ellen White. The words I'll read to you come right after a statement that she makes about Rahab. So remember, as we read these words, they are in the context of Rahab. Here's what she writes. No distinction on account of nationality, race, or caste is recognized by God. He is the maker of all humankind. All people are of one family by creation, and all are one through redemption. Christ came to demolish every wall of partition, to throw open every compartment of the temple courts that every soul may have free access to God. His love is so broad, so deep, so full, that it penetrates where? Everywhere. 
It lifts out of Satan's influence those who have been deluded by his deceptions and places them within reach of the throne of God, the throne encircled by the rainbow of promise. Ponder that. His love is so broad, so deep, so full, that it penetrates everywhere. Even the red light district. It lifts out of Satan's influence those who have been deluded by his deception and places them within reach of the throne of God. She's writing this in the context of Rahab. Are you saying that we serve the kind of God who would be willing to stoop so low that there in the red light district the Spirit assures you are next to the throne of God. Is that the kind of God we serve? It's hard to take in. Because we know what it is to be moral, to be upstanding, to be righteous, to be well-dressed and cleaned-up church people. And then along comes a God about whom we end up having to ask, God, are you saying to me that no pit is so deep, no gutter is so grimy, no night is so dark, no phase place is so far that you will not go there so that the person there will know the throne room of God is near. Is that the kind of God we serve? The child of whom this woman Rahab will be an ancestor. He will grow up and will live that out. People like me, religious types, religious leaders, will say of him, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They mean it as an epithet. And yet he accepts it as an honor. The man about whom they said, look, the company he keeps, didn't his mother ever tell him about such things? If you lie down with dogs, you'll get up with fleas. Didn't she tell him, birds of a feather flock together? Why are you hanging out with those kind of people? People like Rahab. Is that the kind of God we serve? A God who says, I will go anywhere, use anyone to save someone at any time. I will be willing to use any whose heart even begins to incline in my direction. Is that the kind of God that we serve? It's all good as we read Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, all the great names, but then buried right there in the middle, Rahab, the harlot. What are we to make of that? I love the words of that venerable, old, inimitable Scottish scholar, William Barclay writing about this very situation. 
Listen to Barclay's words. If Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for improbable candidates, he could not have discovered four more incredible ancestors for Jesus Christ. But surely there is something very lovely here. Here at the very beginning, Matthew shows us in symbol the essence of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. For here he shows us the barriers going down. And then he talks about three barriers that go down. Right at the beginning, right in the lineage. One, the barrier between Jew and Gentile is down. Rahab, the woman of Jericho, and Ruth, the woman of Moab, find their place within the pedigree of Jesus Christ. Already the great truth is there that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. Here at the very beginning, there is the universalism of the gospel and of the love of God. That's the first. Second one, the barriers between male and female are down. In no ordinary pedigree would the name of any woman be found, but such names are found in Jesus' pedigree. The old contempt is gone, and men and women stand equally dear to God and equally important to His purposes. Second one. Now the third one. The barrier between saint and sinner is down. Somehow God can use for his purposes and fit into his scheme of things those who have sinned greatly. I have come, said Jesus, to call not the righteous, but sinners. Here at the very beginning of the gospel, we are given a hint of the all-embracing width of the love of God. God can find his servants among those from whom the respectable orthodox would shrink away in horror. Hear that sentence again. God can find his servants among those from whom the respectable orthodox would shrink away in horror. Are you telling me that God will go anywhere, use anyone to reach everyone that he might save some? Rahab. In fact, Rahab is far from alone. Have you read Scripture lately? Have you lingered over the stories of the men and women therein contained? Have you thought about their failures? I'd like to just read you a list of, of a random number of biblical personalities and then an accompanying trait or two for which they were known. Just consider whom God will use. Elijah was suicidal. Joseph was spoiled. Job went bankrupt. Moses had a speech impediment. Samson was a womanizer. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Jeremiah was emotionally labile. Jacob was a cheater. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Jonah ran away from God. The twelve disciples fled in cowardly fashion when Jesus needed them. Peter had a temper and denied Jesus three times. Noah got drunk. Paul was an accessory to murder. Gideon was insecure. Miriam was a gossip. Martha was a worrier. Thomas was a doubter. Rahab was a prostitute. And Lazarus was dead. 
it pretty well gives you an idea of the lengths to which God will go to say, nothing will stop me in my search for human beings. I will use anyone in any way to save some. That is our God, the God of Rahab, the God of Matthew, the God who seeks you today. Could Rahab speak to you? She would say, don't pay attention to the outer appearances. Don't give heed to what things seem to be because God reaches us all. And so I say to you, Say to you who walked into church this morning. Parent, parent whose child has wandered far from God, parent whose child is lost in rage, lost in alcohol, lost in drugs, God is not finished with them. God is after them. He will use anyone in their pathway to try to reach them and woo them back to his presence because the throne room of God is not far from where they are. Wife, you who came in this morning with your marriage teetering on the precipice, you've lost your husband. Oh, his body is still there in the house. But his mind and his heart and his soul are gone into the Internet, into digital pictures and images. God is still after him. We'll let him be miserable with the natural consequences of that, and then we'll be there to woo, to call, to bring him back. Remember, you came in this morning facing bankruptcy, not knowing where your job will take you next, not knowing about your spouse, not knowing about your family, desperate to know that God isn't finished with you. And then Rahab speaks. Rahab speaks and says, he's not finished with you. Because when he finds out who you are, he doesn't backpedal like Fraser and Niles. He comes to you. Because he's the God who is with us. He brings his throne room to where you are. In fact, I think were Rahab to stand here today, I think what she would say to us is this. She would say, look at my story. Because my story tells you that your future looks like the past doesn't matter. Your future looks like the past doesn't matter. Because this list, she would say, you thought it was just names. Good names. Regal royal names. No. This is a list of human beings. It's a list about the pedigree of Jesus. But more importantly, it's a list about your future. Because of the simple fact that Jesus' pedigree can determine your destiny.